I always struggled with was when you go into prisons and you see people in prison that you think, actually, is prison the right place for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in the interviews, one individual particular that, you know, we just, you, it was a health approach. There was mm -hmm. such cry out need for a health approach. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were to make that decision, you'd be saying this person should be in a secure hospital, not mm -hmm. a prison. Um, you know, and, and I was really conscious of that again. And I think that is something that certainly I personally struggle with. And seeing people in custodial environments are actually incredibly vulnerable. Yes, mm -hmm. they may have done a really awful thing, but actually we're not going to treat someone in that environment. There's, yeah. The treatment programmes are not going to meet the needs of people with that level of need. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was, a, there was a couple of people, wasn't there, David, who we thought if their relationships education sexual health and relationships education had been better and they'd a better understanding of what a healthy relationship was they wouldn't have been there hi i'm naomi murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop i'm david jones so join us every wednesday morning six o'clock uk time for a fresh podcast Yep. So today we're delighted to be joined by Gail Cochran and David Russell. Gail works at Community Justice Scotland, where she provides core training, including in sexual harm risk assessments to justice social workers and the wider justice workforce. And Gail has been involved in the development and delivery of restorative justice training for the past four years to justice social workers, police officers, prison officers and youth workers. But beyond exper extensive experience of training, she also has a background in advocacy and has previously managed a prison visitor centre. Gail is the chair of the Scottish Restorative Justice Practitioners Network and, among other organisations, is a member of European Forum of Restorative Justice Trainers Committee and Working Group on Gender-Based Violence. David is Community Safety and Justice Manager at Midlothian Council and the lead for the development of restorative justice. Previously, he worked for Bernardo's, specialising in work with children and young people with harmful sexual behaviour and all those who had experienced sexual abuse or exploitation. David has extensive experience in providing assessments and interventions for vulnerable children, adolescents and adults within the field of sexual harm and violence, and has also worked in custodial settings. And David is a member of NOTUS Scotland Executive Committee and chairs the Community Justice Scotland Network, as well as Thriving Survivors, which supports the practice and development of restorative justice in cases of sexual harm. Really pleased you can both join us today. And, you know, it was great that you said yes to the, to the invite after you posted your publication. So, well, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hello there, Gail and David. Thanks very much for coming along. It's really nice to uh, to uh, meet meet with you. Can we begin by you telling us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you came to be interested in restorative justice? Who wants to go first? Do you want to go first, David? <laughs> okay, I can do. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, Yes, I suppose uh, in terms of background, um, so I started working as an operational prison officer in HMP Edinburgh, um, and then that role kind of progressed into many different roles within the prison service, including kind of supporting families um, and supporting interventions within the prison um, environment. But really quickly, I, I kind of realised I wanted to work with kind of promoting an early intervention and prevention model, and um, so decided to change career and, and, and kind of into children and young people services and um, where I was a senior practitioner supporting young people 
um, that were displaying harmful sexual behaviour. And I suppose for me, it was really about, you know, trying to prevent that behaviour escalating. So prevention has been really key. Um, in terms of the role and how it progressed, I always say I didn't really discover restorative justice. It kind of discovered me um, in terms of having a, a case that was a case of sibling sexual abuse, um, where we had two young people in the family environment where we, we knew we, we didn't want to separate um, and it needed something, a different approach. And that was really how I discovered kind of restorative approaches um, and how we can use them to unify uh, family dynamics um, and support families. And ever since then, really, I've been a, an absolute advocate for restorative justice for, for that very reason, and then started to progress into other, other caseloads. That, that's a very interesting uh, career development, it, it seems to me. But but even when you're talking about um, being a, a prison officer, it sounded, sounded to me like it was quite an advanced uh, position that you held within the uh, the prison service. Is, is that unusual? I think... What, what happened within the prison service is I was always that person that wanted to do more and wanted to do something else. So I joined the prison service because basically I couldn't afford or justify to go back to university um, at the time and really wanted to do that. Um, so I thought, what can I do that works with people, that lets me start learning about people and, and kind of within that setting? Um, and really quickly became really passionate about the work. So I got opportunities to further develop and, and train um, and yeah, I'm really grateful to the support I suppose I got in the Scottish Prison Service in terms of being allowed to go on different courses, different training opportunities. Um, and I always say if I hadn't done my four years in prison, I say that lightly, um, if I hadn't done those years in prison, I certainly wouldn't have been able to go on and do the work I've done now. So the, I think the, the amount that you learn in that environment is really significant. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed. And how about you, Gail? Um, I won't go too much into my career because I'm significantly older than David, so I've had considerably more. But, I mean, really, the, the key things, I suppose, were initially the prevention as well. My interest was very much in working with young people who were at risk of misusing drug, drugs and alcohol initially. Um, and then that ended up being risk-taking behaviours, including sexual, sexual health. Um, and it was actually, when I was working on sexual health, I was really interested in sexual harm because of some of the key, some of the... Um, attitudes and some of the things that were coming across working in sexual health, particularly when I worked in a clinic, um, including working with people who had been raped and sexually assaulted. Um, but so, so yeah, so prevention was always really where I was work-wise. And then I had an interest in justice and had been a volunteer with an organisation called Families Outside um, on their advisory group. And a lot of the young people that I had worked with had been um, in conflict with the law as well. So that's always kind of around about, you know, who I was working with as well. And I also did a lot of work around about expert witness work in drugs cases as well. So I knew defence lawyers and defence agents and things like that. Then I worked in the Prison Visitor Centre and kind of brought together all the work that I'd done over the years, including the voluntary, you know, other group work that I had been I'd engaged in, I was actually made redundant and had about five different kite roles at one point, which were all to do with health, um, health and education, um, working with carers, families affected by substance use. So I kind of everything came together when I worked in the prison visitor centre. Really, I was what I wanted to work with people who um, weren't engaging with services um, to try and try and encourage them to engage with services to improve their health. Um, and was very, became very interested in trauma-informed practice. My interest in restorative justice came about, I suppose, 
well before that, when I was still working in drug and alcohol field, I did, a, when my children were at nursery, a non-violent communication course, which um, I found really, really interesting. And then I did some mediation when I was working as a youth worker. So I always had an interest in that kind and obviously restorative justice isn't exactly the same, but I was kind of thinking along those lines. And I had watched a lot about Northern Ireland and about a lot of the restorative justice that happened after the Good Friday Agreement and thought it was fascinating. And... When I started working for Community Justice Scotland, I got the opportunity to find out about what was happen, happening in Scotland with regards to restorative justice. And I kind of went on a journey, meeting everybody that I could in Scotland who was involved in restorative justice. I was also getting queries about restorative justice um, from people who, who wanted it and also from people who were interested in learning more about it. And so I went to, did a course at Strathclyde University um, on restorative justice with, with Tim Chapman. And then again, travelled, went to Northern Ireland to meet practitioners, um, was involved with a project in Edinburgh, a hate crime and restorative justice project, initially to train the restorative justice facilitators, but became involved in the project and have been ever since. So that's been four years. Um, I'm also a practitioner, a facilitator with that project as well. And was encouraged to be involved with the European Forum for Restorative Justice after Strathclyde and have been heavily involved with a lot of work that they've done, including delivering training on restorative justice and serious harm. So really, I've like David, I've been extremely lucky and professionally that my work has allowed me to develop um, restorative justice work and to, to travel and meet people who are interested. And I've been involved in really interesting training around restorative justice and obviously the research with David. It's really Thank interesting you. to hear you um, referencing Northern Ireland, because I think we, we interviewed Gerard Drennan, who's from South Africa, and he spoke about the inspiration from South Africa about restorative justice. Yeah. And we also interviewed Baz Dreisinger, who's been to many countries around the world, and she spoke about restorative justice in other African countries. And it okay. seems like something really really progressive that's emerged out of these very troubled you know history countries with very troubled histories mm -hmm. but yet something really progressive and restorative has come from that in a way that we don't always manage to do within mm -hmm. our society absolutely <laughs> thank you so what brought you uh, both together professionally me begging getting to help <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think I think we met, we've met a few times. It's been interesting because I think our paths crossed quite quite a bit more than in terms of what we used to really recognise. Um, and then when I so my my role really covers um, is kind of governed by Community Justice Scotland in terms of the local authority. Um, and Gail and I really connected, I suppose, through quite early in terms of my new role as well in terms of CGS um, and the connection to Community Justice Scotland. And I think quite quickly realised that. Um, we, we both had a real passion for restorative justice and, and we ended up on various projects together working on different pieces of work um, and then simply we probably got a bit closer when I asked Gail to support with the, 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 the research which was an idea um, and really asking for that for that support which which thankfully Gail agreed to um, and that kind of ran from, from there really I think. Thank you. I, I love hearing about these uh, creative connections that people make i think they're really encouraging so so what about your research how did that come about and what what made you think it would be interesting to explore the attitudes of people 
who had committed sexual offences to restorative justice. Well, like, like you answered the first bit, David, I can I'd certainly see why I was interested, but really the research came from, from you, didn't it? From your kind of yeah, I think it really started from frustration, actually, um, <laughs> in terms of, I think there was a lot of professional assumption being made um, in terms of how we should see sex offenders within a restorative process. Um, there was various um, kind of backlash in terms of the development of restorative justice in Scotland being used in sexual harm cases, which, as I've said, in practice, I've, I've seen work and I know it can be effective. So I think for me, that was really important. Um, and the bit that I kept coming up against was we're making all these assumptions, but actually there's very little evidence locally in Scotland to tell us why this is or not suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of it came from from that place and actually thinking, well, why don't we really find out? Why don't we ask? And rightly so, restorative justice is a, a victim-centred um, process, completely get that. But it's also a voluntary process for both parties. And I think for me, it was really important that we we're, we're being challenged in terms of well, why would someone take part? What would possibly motivate them? Mm-hmm. I see everyone as, as, that, as a human at times. And personally, I would hope that some people would want to take part to, to kind of look at help and support healing. Um, so we asked, well, well, I said to Gil, well, why don't we have a look at this? Why don't we go in and try and get a pool of people um, and ask them what would be your motivations to engage? But it did come from as basic a place as that. Um, and then it kind of grew into into much more of a kind of research piece, really, after a bit of discussion with Gail. Yeah, and and for me, um, like David, I've worked mostly with people who've been harmed. Um, and well, in, in some roles, worked with people who've been harmed, and certainly the requests I had been getting for restorative justice were from people who a couple of people who'd been harmed, uh, sexually harmed. And my other role in Community Justice Scotland is obviously about risk assessing men who've committed sexual offences. And it was just that opportunity to get the other side of the coin. And as David said, you know, I think we have to we have to understand that men who commit sexual offences are human beings. They're, they're, not mon- they're not monsters, they're human beings. And, you know, if we want them to engage, we have to understand what motivations they might have. And there was certainly a lot of rhetoric about how their motivations, you know, wouldn't be good. They'd want to engage, they want to engage for all the wrong reasons. And I'm not, actually, you know, th- you know, they're not a homogenous group. They're going to have different reasons for wanting to engage. Some might be good reasons and some might not, but we need to have some evidence to, to present and to actually look at that because there is some evidence there, but there's not there's not a huge amount. And as David said, there was nothing nothing local or national really um, for us to go on. So, and generally speaking, I like, I like, um, interviewing people I like hearing hearing people's perspectives and it was a really great opportunity just to get that insight that we would we wouldn't get otherwise um yeah I think the other thing I was just going to add was in terms of the other bit for me it was a very generic response from from a professional network in terms of all sexual harm cases and I think that really problematic because I think we, we what we wanted to do in this study and I think what we did do successfully was was break down that sex offences aren't one thing, sexual violence, sexual harm isn't one thing. You know, they all come with individualised risk factors, they all come with different vulnerability factors. Um, and I think that was the other key for us is, yes, absolutely, some instances of sexual violence may not be suitable or appropriate, but not all of them. So trying to break down some of the barriers was, was really one of the, the main objectives to this one. I think you're highlighting something really important, actually, that even amongst um, people that work in 
and around justice that there can be this um, extra barrier um, in thinking about people who've committed sexual offences. It somehow becomes more more problematic. I know certainly that you know there've been events organised within the justice system in England, uh, where, you know, on the basis that these people are harder to, to work with for professionals rather than recognising they're human beings and there'll be some that are really motivated, you know, have the motivation to do better and contribute something positive and, and not everybody is looking for an opportunity to be predatory all of the, all of the time. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's a really challenging area that you uh, chose. How did you go about doing the research? David's good, great contacts in the Scottish <laughs> Prison Service. <laughs> it was a good place to start, wasn't yeah. it? I think, because again, the, the, the beauty of having a community justice partnership is that we have all these national partners on our working group and board as a national partnership and as a local partnership. Having that contact is, is great because we all we can share the, the ethics responsibility, we can look at you know, have really open conversations with the Scottish Prison Service to ask them what would that look like in terms of this, um, you know, and, and how we'd have to do that. So it really started as a, as a proposal in terms of kind of an, an ethical outline proposal to the Scottish Prison Service, asking them what, you know, what would we need to do here? This is absolutely what we want to do. We highlighted, obviously, the, the support mechanisms, etc., that would be put in place. Um, and I think that it was really that that point. Like I said, the big bit for me was, you know, desperately seeking support from from someone else, and it happened. So I was quite adamant that, that I was hoping that Gail would agree to. Um, and I think the same response we both had were actually probably both too busy to do this, but it was really needed. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So after the kind of initial discussions in and out the prison service, asking them how we were going to do it. Um, yeah. The, it was pretty straightforward. It was really smooth, actually, much more than I would anticipated. Yeah. yeah. So you, you you had some doubts then, did you, Gail? You thought you might encounter more barriers than you did, in fact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we were both lucky in the sense that we both had a relationship with the prison that the research was carried out, and I'd done a piece of restorative work there prior previously, and David obviously had worked there, and, you know, but I think... Often you do find these barriers. It just, it just seemed to be was it June, David, wasn't it? We started. We we just it, it just I, I don't know of really very many people that managed to get such a quick turnaround on getting approval, going in and doing the research and getting something written. I just yeah, I'm still I'm I'm sure it's down to David, but I'm still very very impressed that yeah I'm the, yeah we're used to barriers, particularly this because of the subject matter. You know, you're always having to justify. Yeah. Sorry. I think we were very explicit in terms of what we wanted to do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think we were also, what we were really clear about was that actually within this, it was, it was going to be very much anonymised, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there would be no links in terms of people being exposed, potentially in the media, etc. But I think we, we really narrowed it down. I think if we went in with something much broader in terms of sort of criminology study, I think that would have been different. But we, trying to do something at the time that Scotland was pushing locally within the government and mm -hmm. um, so I think that was that was definitely key um, and sorry there's a dog keeps coming in right here um, I think that that was key in terms of getting that run through um, and, and really not I was, was going to say David that through the whole lockdown period the appearance of pets cats and dogs particularly 
on yeah. Zoom and Teams because it was very common. But it's the first time I've heard and seen a dog tap dancing on a wooden floor. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so moving on, what, what did you actually discover in your research? Um, I mean, lots of really, I mean, it, it was fascinating and I think we could do a deep dive into it more really, you know, um, because we did have quite a short turnaround, but I think there was, there was, there was a number of things. I think the, there's the surprise was because we, you know, in restorative justice, there has to be accountability, you know, um, in order for it to take place, the person responsible has to be accountable. Um, and the, the vast majority of the men that we interviewed took full responsibility for the harm they'd caused. And I think that was really interesting and surprising to a lot, to a lot of people. Um, and the, the the history of the men as well was very interesting. I'd like David talk about that a wee bit more because that's, you know, but I, thought, I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and the, for me, there was two other things. The fact that a lot of them really understood what restorative justice was. Some of them, some of them didn't, and we had to explain. But the, they really grasped the concept. They maybe didn't understand the finer detail, but they really a lot of people really grasped the concept of it. And they also had a really good understanding. Again, not all of them, but a lot of them had a really good understanding of the impact of what they'd done to the to the person harmed. They had a really good understanding of trauma, and they had a really good understanding um, of the impact of that. And again, that's something that. A lot, not us, but other people would not would not have anticipated. Um, really, for me, they were they were the big things, um, and yeah, how important it was to get the restorative process right as well. You know what we what, what you needed from a facilitator to get it right. Hmm. What about you, David? I think I mean I think we knew from from practice experience that we were we were going to come up against a group of people who had experienced trauma, who had experienced forms of adversity. I think what was overwhelming though was actually the number. Mm -hmm. I think when we when we really reflected on, on the number of, of, of this and, and we deliberately took a stance of we're not going to ask people in this study, have you experienced trauma? Mm -hmm. Have you experienced adversity? Have you experienced child sexual abuse? And I think we were really clear about making it very, very restorative itself, even the interview. But the amount of self-disclosure was really, really high. And that didn't just include experiences of child sexual abuse. There was reference to forms of sexual humiliation, um, negative sexual experience, such as erectile dysfunction. Um, neg so really, we captured them as negative sexual experience to split away from, from, from the, the kind of line of child sexual abuse. I think it was really interesting just to see how high the numbers were in terms of that, um, which again, I think was, was some of the for me that the point of making around really having an, an insight into the treatment aspect of someone's existence around their psychosexual development and thinking about what role that even plays within restorative justice to get a sense of when you're putting two people in a room we're not just thinking about the harm that we're here to look at we're also got to think about the dynamics that both people's mm -hmm. life Experienced, and I think that was really important. But yeah, we were quite overwhelmed by just the amount of self-disclosure. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind, these were averaging about 30 to 40 minutes yeah. um, and some really significant disclosures in those mm -hmm. periods. And I think there was the stigma and shame stuff as well, David. We had, I mean, I certainly had some very deep conversations with a couple of, a couple of the men we interviewed about um, shame and stigma associated with their offence. 
And, you know, it was palpable, the feeling of shame from them. And I think, again, that's something that's often not recognised people out with the field, you know, and the impact that has on their future, on future offender and, you know, on their, on their future. So I think that was another significant thing for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you've been, you know, your experience was really rubbing up against those stereotypes of, mm-hmm. of people. And it sounds like you'd have quite a lot of... Um, you know, quite a lot to offer in terms of just your own reflections on the experience of of interviewing, not just the actual data that you you collected. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of the, do we know anything about the impact of restorative justice on recidivism for this population? Not so much for this population. There hasn't been a huge amount of research. Um, You know, we know about it for other populations. I think as somebody who works, who's been involved in restorative justice for quite a while, often there's a little bit of hesitation about talking about the impact of restorative justice on recidivism because that's not the purpose of it. You know, the the, pur- the purpose of it is yeah. for the dialogue between the between the two parties. Yeah. You know, and that should be the focus. You know, that it, it, it's there. It's there. It's there event it's there and, and actually it's not just the meet it's, it's everything it's the whole process it's the, pri- the, the the prep the meeting and what happens mm-hmm. afterwards so i think because philosophically we're not supposed to we're not, you know we're we're not really supposed to focus on that um however there ha- obviously has been some research particularly with joanna chaplin professor joanna chaplin about recidivism in general with restorative justice and it shows that you know there are it, it does promote recidivism and it's cheaper than, you know, it, actually it's cost effective as well. I think why me have just done some research about the cost effectiveness of it as well. But as far as, 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 as sexual offences, there isn't a huge amount out there. Do you I think, think the other thing in terms of when, when we look at the kind of impact of reservatism, I think the other thing as well is around em- the, the role that empathy plays. And, and empathy is, if anyone's heard me go on about it before, about I struggle sometimes with the term empathy and how much emphasis we put on this. But I think what was interesting through some of the quotes and some of the, the interviews, one in particular really sticks with me, where it was and it's written up actually in the report, where the, really? the participant says, um, you know, to actually see someone face to face and hear about the impact, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because that to me was starting to help, that, you know, to physically see the harm that's been caused, to physically hear about it firsthand. You could almost see in the room at that time that you understood the gravity of that. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the role in terms of, of, of that process. Yeah. I, yeah. Sorry, girl. No, I was just going to say, following from David said, it's that, you know, the humanising, it's, the, it's the, 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 the restorative process and particularly if they do meet, but not just if they meet, that it humanises the other person. And I think it's much, you know, that that we hope that that will promote recidivism. You know, I think it's that um, it's really easy to, it's not easy, but if you, if you don't think of the person you've harmed as, you know, as fully human, if it's, it's much it's much easier to, 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 to cope as well. You know, it's a survival mechanism. Um, but actually, when you're faced with the person you've harmed, that's very powerful and it can invoke change. I, I mean, I do firmly believe it can, it can invoke change. Um, it certainly works the other way around for people who've been harmed because there's been a fair amount of research on that. You know, we know it works the other way around. Yeah, we do. We know it helps people heal, doesn't it, and recover. Yeah. And, I, but I was, and I think also, you know, 
I think we lose sight of the fact that treatment for people who've offended should also be about their healing because, Mm -hmm. you know, these are people who are often very damaged and, you know, I think the punitive response doesn't, doesn't, doesn't promote healing and we need to find ways to do that and it's you know really moving to hear about those experiences of people really feeling the weightiness of the implications of their actions because actually that suggests some growth doesn't it for the the person who's caused the caused the harm what what learning do you think organizations could take from your work you know that in terms of changing their practice i think one that really strikes me is we, we you know, we, we've went on for some time about training needs mm-hmm. in terms of, so not just in restorative justice, but restorative justice in cases of sexual harm. And I think, you know, we've, I would, I would say, Gail, and correct me if I'm wrong, we've both advocated for that in terms of people having specialist understanding, but not necessarily just of restorative justice. I think it's important that people have an understanding and come from a knowledge base <clears throat> of sexual harm. Mm-hmm. Because I think then we understand the complexities and nuances that, that fall within that in terms of the interactions. Um, and also, to, to you know, we, we, we totally identify the risk of coercive control. We know coercion is a, pres- a prevalent theme mm-hmm. within certain crime indexes within sexual offending. So I think having, you know, that, that understanding, that skill set to be able to, to make sure that's safe, I think it's really clear. Um, and the other one I'll, I'll just speak about is in terms of having that neurodivergent open mm-hmm. approach as well. So I think one of the, the, the fears that I have with restorative justice and not just RJ, but in all terms of people, so thinking of people, for example, that are autistic. So if we have um, uh, someone who's autistic, then actually they might not give the signs and messaging that we want someone to give as a facility in a room or in an environment. So actually, I think we need to be clear that it doesn't, we don't have one approach here that's going to fit for everybody or work for everybody. That doesn't mean RJ should be excluded. It just means actually we need to think about the alternatives. So that these were some of the recommendations we made and I'll let Gail pick up. There was a couple, few other. Yeah, um, I think, well, I'll, you, I'll just find the recommend, all the recommendations at the end of the day. <laughs> but I think, you know, for, from uh, my perspective about organisations, I suppose there's two things, exactly what David said about learning about that to do the work, to do to be an RG facilitator for this type of work, you have to you have to be very well trained and you have to understand, you know, um sexual harm as well as things like working with neurodivergent people. But I think, you know, um from the organisations who might be working with people who have been harmed, it's just to understand that, you know, a bit more about the nature of people who commit these types of offences that they're, they're they're all very different there are some cases that will be mo- much more suitable for restorative justice than than others will be um, and not everybody is going to be suitable for it and i think we have to emphasize that, that this is not for everybody you know mm-hmm. and i think the research shows that there are some people you can like you, you know you can you can tell just from the little snippets like who who you might want to pers- you know pursue things a little bit further with if that was ever to be a, a reality and for those who are working with people who have um, committed sexual offences, there are, you know, there are there are programmes that, well, we know there are programmes that are carried out the community of men who commit sexual offences. And it's certainly been piloted in the States, um, bringing together um, people who have been, people who have been the victims of sexual, of sexual offences, um, 
who have been through a restorative process who are quite happy to talk to men who've committed, committed sexual harm. Not that, not, the, not their person, so more of a proxy environment. Yeah. They have been... so, And it kind of follows on from the victim empathy work that often happens in programmes. But, you know, the, the, the women that I met, there was, so there's two women, two women who had been raped who were working in this field and were, you know, um, were quite happy to speak to men who were on, who were, um, on community orders. And they went in to, to talk to the men about the impact on them and then they offered to have a restorative conference with them. They, so they, they worked with them for six weeks. I think it's six men and the two women. So they, they mm -hmm. do this, the victim empathy thing, but then they offer say, would you like to have a conference with us as a pro as, as the proxy, um, proxy victims? And I think that's a really exciting idea. And certainly my colleagues um, in Scotland, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but I've certainly spoken to colleagues who work um, with violence against women and girls, particularly who work in with them um, in rape crisis centres, who say that they know people who would be, you know, who've been harmed, who would be interested in taking part in something like that, because if it affects change. So I think there's lots of ideas, you know, that, that, that come that come from this. And I think really the conversations I've been having with colleagues, it's really prompted them to really think about the possibilities of restorative justice which which they haven't they haven't thought about before um and that yeah i think but it's really i think if it just makes people open their open their eyes a little bit and think about the, the variety of different people who have committed sexual offenses you know and that the, the, there is there are possibilities there um so i'm just quickly finding the recommendations david have you managed <laughs> oh here we I go think we'll <laughs> yeah here we go so we've spoken about facilitators understanding rg in the context of sexual harm well you're you're but david about the psychosexual assessments and models of risk should be utilized when, when considering the motivational factors and suitability for individuals who commit sexual harm participating in it so just yeah Using what we have already, so those skills, um, I think that's really, really important. Preparation is always, I mean, when I'm delivering training on restorative justice, I don't know how many times I talk about being prepared and prepar in preparation, because it's not a meeting. It's everything else that happens before it is mm -hmm. just as important, because you have to, everybody has to be fully prepared for the restorative process if it is a face-to-face -face or if it's shuttle dialogue but everybody has to be fully prepared and I think that is absolutely key and it can take a very it can take a long time um and just yeah I think families well-being that was an interesting one David wasn't it? a few people spoke about the risk to their families if they took part and about again back to stigma and shame particularly in communities you know and about you know really it's not just about the individuals it's about the wider it's about the wider community and we have to really take cognizance of the fact that this is not just there's a number of individuals number of people involved in the process and communities are involved in the process um i think recommendations were really clear even in terms of the, the, the use of assessment i think that mm -hmm. was really important in terms of things that we probably haven't really given a lot of thought to previously yeah. how much of a kind of contribution to, to the kind of knowledge this was because what we, we haven't really thought about actually, if someone's in prison um, and they want to engage in a restorative process and they get contacted to do so, that that is almost really safe for them. They're the secure base, they were safe. But a lot of the guys were reflecting and saying, actually though, what if that got on Facebook? What if it got on Twitter? What if it went into the local newspaper? I'm in prison, I'm safe, but my family isn't. 
So it was, you know, I think it's things like that about looking at suitability and capability within risk assessments, opposed to just traditional risk. Um, so I think that's been really helpful to think about that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, really interesting to think, to hear about how your innovative research has led to kind of like more curiosity and thinking about possibility for others. But what had you planned to build on this research in any way? Do you have further plans in the pipeline? Well, like the girl mentioned at the beginning, we were, we were yeah. kind of, you know, there was a bit at the beginning where we had been told that you might not get anybody. So, so we were told, just be ready for nobody to come forward, nobody to, to want to engage. We ended up at 44. I really reckon we could have had over 100. Um, it was really interesting how many people wanted to get their voice heard and wanted to take part. Um, I think Gail and I have had conversations about potentially looking at this in a local, um, sorry, a community context. I think it'd be really interesting for someone that's, you know, under social work statutory supervision for a sexual offence in the community. I think that would be a, a, a nice comparative piece. Um, so, yeah, you never know. I think there is certainly good links to build on there at the moment. Yeah. What have there been the personal challenges to you of doing this work? Well, a long silence. I know I was looking at David says he going to go first or am I or am I going to go first? <laughs> um, there's, there's, I would say there was one. I mean, I think what, what it really echoed was that you know even research. So I've always said for, for I work with a lot of academics. That, that read some horrible content on a daily basis. And I don't, and even crime analysts, data analysts, I don't think we give it enough credit in terms of reading content and listening to transcripted content, the impact of that. We're very good at seeing practitioners, um, you know, that are operational frontline working with people and seeing how that could experience difficulty. But I think what was really interesting was actually, it was almost more difficult coming back home and then listen to the transcripts and listen to the interviews. And it really made me sit back and think about actually those people I work really closely with, they don't get enough supervision. They don't get enough clinical supervision mm -hmm. to help reflect on this content. So yeah, it's definitely changed my way of practicing, even with the analysts I work with mm -hmm. um, and that, that we have in, in the global to give them that additional support. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because we, we interviewed um, Shona Minson, who's a researcher uh, recently. She researches into the impact of uh, parental imprisonment on children. And she's she, really sort of candid, um, brave interview where she spoke about the impact of doing research and listening to transcripts, which, of course, means you get really deep into the story, often listen to it multiple times, but also you're because you're researching, you don't have the power to then go and do anything to change the situation for that individual either. Whereas she previously worked as a barrister and so she felt like she was playing her part in some procedural um, event. So she was really arguing very strongly for researchers in certain areas to be able to have um, more sort of clinical supervision rather than just um, task-focused supervision because there's so much emotion that comes up in relation to the work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a reflection, you know, that, that we and even debrief and I think Gail as well would agree. Important, so important. Yeah. You might have the, the meetings and having those debriefs, I think it was that space and we always talk about that personal and professional supervision. So and I always describe that really unprofessionally, but I think it's it's been able to 
professionally reflect and think about practice, but also to be able to say when you really just thought that person was really difficult and you really emotionally struggled with them. So I think there's a place for that too. And as Dumptings think we have a professional system in our head that we think I can't possibly say that about that person, but actually sometimes you need to vent that and sometimes you have to have safe spaces to be able to say why you were horrified mm-hmm. or why you were disgusted by that content, you know. Yeah, we, um, were, we were lucky, weren't we, David, that we had some sometimes a little break after some of the quite yeah. difficult ones. We were like, whoa, you know, we, but so we, yeah, and because I think because of our relationship, we were able to just, as you say, be honest with each other about how we felt afterwards. So it was really helpful to have that, to have that, those debriefs, definitely. I think, and the other thing, so I was just going to add was, I hadn't, you know, so obviously working in prisons previously, what I was really, what I always struggled with was when you go into prisons and you see people in prison that you think, actually, is prison the right place for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the interviews, one individual particular that, you know, we just, you, it was a health approach. There was mm-hmm. such cry out need for a health approach. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to make that decision, you'd be saying this person should be in a secure hospital, not mm-hmm. a prison. Um, you know, and, and I was really conscious of that again. And I think that is something that certainly I personally struggle with. And seeing people in custodial environments are actually incredibly vulnerable. Yes, mm-hmm. they may have done a really awful thing, but actually, we're not going to treat someone in that environment. There's, yeah. The treatment programs are not going to meet the needs of people with that level of need. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a couple of people, wasn't there, David, who we thought if their relationships, education, sexual health and relationships education had been better and they had a better understanding of what a healthy relationship was, they wouldn't have been there. You know. I mean, obviously that's yeah. our, from what, what we gauged yeah. from speaking to them, but that certainly, you know. Um, came across and it's certainly backed up in my experience of working sexual health and relationships as well. Yeah. And was there anything you wanted to add, Gail, about the personal challenges of doing the work or is, would you echo David? I'd echo David. I suppose one thing is, was it is for personal coming from being a, a feminist perspective, I suppose, that it's quite interesting, you know, a lot of the critics, the massive critics of this work are feminists and, you know, um, sort of been perceived to a certain degree as an apologist for for men who've committed sexual offences you know that I found that especially more recently that that's I feel like I have to justify the work you know and for me it's a they're human beings and we have to understand what they why they've done what they've done if, if we can and b it's about preventing future harm you know and I think for me that is absolutely my motivation is to prevent future harm and for people to have better lives and you know, I, I think that's been one of the definitely something that I've just reflected on more recently, but certainly it's been part of the po- politics around about it in Scotland as well. But, but you know, I never, I've never, I, I, I was very aware that I support our, you know, I, I believe in RJ if it's done properly. So that was never as much of an issue. But more recently, I've been thinking about that as well. Yeah, I can imagine that being difficult. And obviously, we increasingly know more about women who, are, who sexually offend, don't we? And certainly, you know, I've worked with a lot of men who have been offended against sexually offended against by by women when they were little boys so mm-hmm. you know the 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 idea that it's just a gendered thing just isn't entirely straightforward is it so you've obviously both heard a lot of painful stories and how, how do you look after your own emotional well-being beyond supervision what advice would you give to others about how to preserve their own health well i go first mm-hmm. with this one david or do you want <laughs> um I mean, I suppose it's it's about 
compart- I suppose it's compartmentalising, isn't it? It's about having, I suppose there's two things, there's, as David said, about the opportunity to have a debrief and to have a rant and to have just, you know, a safe space to say what you need to say and without being judged on what you're saying. But also after that, to be able to just switch off and go and do something else, you know, I think for me, um, it's getting out in fresh air and exercise and, you know, sort of for me that even particularly, obviously this has been after lockdown, but I think getting out and getting fresh air and animals, I mean, David's got animals as well, but going out with the dog, you know, being outside running for me, there and are, are the things that I would do to, to kind of look after myself. I've, I'm, I've always been quite good at compartmentalising, obviously sometimes better than, you know, as, um, but it's just... There, yeah, debrief supervision, but also not not taking your work home with you if if that's possible. And <laughs> look at David when I say that. But I, th- I think it's hard when we work. We are working from home too, so I think that's a big. You know, again, the lines between home life and work life are so blurred now, and it's become more difficult to separate the two. Um, but I really do just switch everything off, including my work phone, when I finish, and and that's it. You know. Um, and I know it's not always that straightforward for people, but for me, that's how I, I maintain my sort of um, my balance. Thank you. And David? The lick will give me just now. Yeah, I think it is. It's, it is so important. And I think having those those debriefs is, is massively helpful to be able to do that. Um, I think an, an, an example for me in this work, what, what I did find useful was the difference from kind of that operational approach to the interview and then breaking that down. And what I found really helpful was writing up whether this is correct or incorrect. So actually the write up, but not necessarily just the transcript, but actually writing a piece in terms relating to this work to remind me why I'm doing it. So actually coming back and outlining the forward, what we want to cover, what we're trying to achieve. Um, you know, and I think I think that did help. And I think it helped almost remove some of the emotion from it in terms of to make sure it was completely non-biased. We were really clear about that, which I think we managed to achieve. Um, but yeah, it is that. And as Gail says, I think having something you know in your life um, to be able to go to and, and having a different part, because it is a really consuming area. And I think when we do these types of research studies, I think it's very easy to get sucked in. Even the content we're reading constantly trying to read and read and read you know and, and gain more knowledge because it doesn't matter how many times you work with individuals that are, that are like this you come away with more questions and you want to know more and mm-hmm. um, so i think it is about giving your, your brain that switch off point um, and allowing that to, to happen mm-hmm. thank you very much for your time today that's been a great conversation thank you thank you yeah thank you very much indeed david and uh Gail. that's been Really, very, very interesting. Like to hear more in the future, perhaps. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Great. Thank you.